Okay, if you would, take your Bible this evening and turn to Psalm 119. I'm going to be reading part of this psalm as a kind of a starting point. We're looking at a topic again tonight. And that topic is title of the message, The Lifeline, or Lifeline with the Lord, which is devotions, personal time with God. Psalm 119, I'm going to read the first 16 verses. It says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgment. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts, and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. So as we continue in our going over... um, our standard sheet, you might call it, with uh, we're looking at a personal time with the Lord uh, in in His Word and His prayer, and that's, that's a devotional time, and it is a personal time with the Lord. You know, the passion of the psalmist here could be summed up in verse five, where he says, "Oh, that my ways were directed to keep Thy statutes." If you're going to keep the statutes of the Lord. You first have to know them. And what's the key to learning? It's repetition. Repetition. And one of the things the Bible tells us over and over to do is to meditate. You know, and, and the idea is there, like a cow who goes out in the pasture, eats grass, feels her first stomach, goes lays down somewhere, and then starts looking like people that are chewing gum. Well, she isn't eating anything. She's bringing that grass back up. And it's called ruminating, you know. She's, she's, she's re-eating it, and, re- and then she's going to re-digest it. Because if she just goes into the first stomach, she doesn't get much out of it. But see, if she brings it back up, chews it up again, and then it goes back down into, and it goes through a process of stomachs in a cow. And, you know, and then she gets all of it out of it that, it, that she can get. You know, if, if we're going to have, if we're going to, if we're going to have our ways directed by the Lord, if we're going to keep his statutes, this is what is required of us when it comes to the word of God. And, you know, and we're talking about personal time with God. You know, people will say, well, I go to church friendly. I hear preaching faithfully. I hear preaching or teaching from the Bible three or four times a week. 
Is that personal? Are you getting your own? Are you feeding yourself? Or are you being spoon-fed? If so, if that's all you're getting, if so, you're being like the Corinthians who Paul said you walk as carnal or you walk as babes. Or like Hebrews says, you're dull of hearing and you need that one teach you or you're unskillful in the word. Basically, what that means is you're spiritually lazy. You're spiritually lazy. You just think others can do it for you and you don't have to do it on your own. You know, and... And again, if, if try that physically, eat three or four times a week, see how well you fare. You know, my wife and I have been trying to fast on Wednesdays. But the one Wednesday, we come over here and, you know, put the trim down, paint it, took all the trim out of the garage, painted it, filled the holes in it, painted it, and we're putting it back in. You know, we were, we, were, we were working. And I said to her about, I don't know, 12, 31 o'clock, would you like some food? <laughs> you know, you burn up calories when you're moving and you're doing things. And, you know, it's not as easy to fast when you're, when you're working. Uh, but so uh, what we needed was some, some nourishment, some strength for the body because we're working. If you're going to... If you're going to have a faith that works, you're going to have to feed it. You're going to have to feed it. Now, we learned last week that church attendance is important. It's very important. You know, it, it guides us and directs us. And, but we need to also have our individual time in the Word of God. So let's think about this and look about this tonight. The personal time in the Word of God. Uh, it is, and, and several things it is. Number one, it is a source of faith. It's a source of faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, Joshua, we would consider Joshua a man of great faith. And one of the things that God told him to do was to meditate day and night in the word of God. That thou mayest prosper and thou mayest have good success. And, and one of the things that the Lord told him was to be of good courage. Don't be afraid. Well, where did he get his courage? Came from meditating in the Word of God. You know, when you meditate upon the Word of God, it will increase your faith. It will in, it will it will increase your faith. It will increase your courage, uh, and 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 help you not to be afraid. You know, the reason Americans and the people around the world are so afraid is their their foundation is shaky. They don't have a solid foundation or footing in the Word of God, even Christian people. And so they're fearful. You know, I have had, I've had people say to me, I wish you had your faith. Well, you can. You can. But there is a cause. What are you reading? See, what you read will affect your faith. Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and verses 13 and 15. He says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 15, Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. You know, he didn't tell them to read novels. 
or horror stories or, you know, no, he, or, or, you know, those kind of things. No, he told him to meditate upon these things, exhortation and doctrine. Uh, you know, some people like to, leave, like to immerse themselves in violent stories. Psalm 11, verse 5 says, Him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Uh, or wild imaginations. And, you know, like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is very popular amongst Christians. In fact, uh, Christianity Today is not really much of a Christian publication. But even they said... They had an article in 2005, November 23rd, 2005, by Bob uh, Smitana and Rebecca Barnes. And the title of the message was C.S. Lewis Superstar. And some of the article goes like this. I couldn't get it all because I didn't subscribe to the magazine. But anyway, you can get part of that on. So the first part of the article goes like this. Quote, at first glance, C.S. Lewis and Elvis Presley seem like polar opposites. But a closer look will show that these two cultural icons have a lot in common. Well, that sounds like a real good Christian, right? Like Elvis, C.S. Lewis had been a soldier. Both men came to fame on radio. Both men's homes, Graceland and Kilns, had become pilgrimage sites. Both left behind estates now valued in millions. And both rose from relative obscurity. Elvis, a Mississippi truck driver, and Lewis, a tutor at Oxford, to become larger-than-life figures profiled in books, movies, and beloved by legions of adoring fans. Like Elvis, even after death, Lewis remains a superstar. Clive Staples Lewis was anything but a classical evangelical. Now, this is Christianity today. Anything but a classical evangelical. Or socially or theologically. He smoked cigarettes and a pipe and regularly visited pubs to drink beer with his friends. Though he shared basic Christian beliefs with evangelicals, he didn't subscribe to biblical inerrancy or penal substitution. The word penal means punishment for crimes or offenses. So he doesn't believe that God's going to punish us for our crimes or offenses against him. In other words, he don't believe in the judgment of God. He believed in purgatory and baptismal regeneration. How does someone with such a checkered pedigree come to be a theological Elvis Presley adored by evangelicals? Unquote. Now this is, this is uh, uh, again, Christianity Today. There's a, long, a longer article in the New York Times opinion about him, calls him the evangelical rock star. And, uh, and one of the things I want to mention here, or read in this article is about the, the uh, imagination or the, the, the cultural imaginations that is affecting, and I believe is very, very vividly affecting our society, <clears throat> fantasy and imagination. And this is the things that C.S. Lewis, this is what his writings really are a lot of it about. Uh, in mere Christian, quote, this, this, this is a New York Times opinion, 2013, titled C.S. Lewis, Evangelical Rockstar by T.M. Lorman. Anyway, part of the article says, quote, In mere Christianity, which is something he wrote, Lewis wrote, Lewis wrote that to pretend, to pretend helps one to experience God as real. So you pretend. So what you pretend makes God real. Really? Anyway, in Narnia, he offered a way to pretend. 
by depicting God who is so explicitly not a God from an ordinary human church. Aslan keeps God safe from human clumsiness and error. What does it mean that our society places such a premium on fantasy and imagination? No culture observes the child psychologist Susan Gaskins comes close to the level of resources for play provided by middle-class Euro-American parents. In many traditional societies, children play by imitating adults. They pretend to cook, marry, plant, and fish. Those are real-life things. Okay, That's not imaginal things. Though they're imagining it, but they're imagining real-life things. Inventive pretend, in which children pretend to the fantastic or impossible, enchanted princesses, dragon hunters, quote-unquote, is rarely, if ever, observed in non-industrialized or traditional cultures. Gaskin says that may be because inventive play often requires adult involvement. Observing the lack of fantasy play among the Manus children in New Guinea, Margaret Mead noted that the greater majority of the children will not even imagine bears under the bed unless the adult provides the bear. Westerners, by contrast, not only tolerate fantasy play, but actively encourage it for adults as well as for children. We are novel readers, movie watchers, and game players. We have made J.K. Rowling very wealthy. And that's your, um, what's that series? No, J.K. Rowling's. Huh? The more up-to-date one. Um, Harry Potter series. Lots of magic, you know, Bible stuff, Bible condemns. Anyway. He goes on, quote, This suggests that we imagine a complex reality in which things might be true materially, spiritually, psychologically. It might be. Science leads us to draw a sharp line between what is real and what is unreal. At the same time, we live in an age in which we are equivocally aware that there are many theories, both religious and scientific, to explain the world, and many ways to be human. Probably fiction does for us what the vision of Aslan did for Bob. You've got to read this, more of this article. But it helps us to learn what we find emotionally true in the face of irreconcilable contradictions. That is what Joshua Landy, a professor of French literature, argues and how to do things with fiction. Fiction teaches us how to think about what we take to be true in the cacophony, that means dissident or things of conflict, of an information-soaked age, we need it. So, so what he's saying here is, and he talks about this man, Bob, who read C.S. Lewis and it helped him to imagine what God could be like. And that's the collusion he came to and rejected what the church has taught. But that's just your imagination. Uh, you know, we have to be careful what we read. You know, Bob, uh, this, this come off of Way of Life, which is David Clyde's website, it's about a guy who attended Bob Jones University, and, and he said, and I'll just read the article. This quote, Bob Jones University, unrestrained emphasis on art and literature holds many spiritual dangers. Consider a student who is influenced by his BGAU studies at, on C.S. Lewis to enter the Anglican ministry and from there the Roman Catholic priesthood. Quote, at Bob Jones University, I majored in interpretive speech with a minor in English. At this stage, I immersed myself in literature, English literature, was greatly influenced by C.S. Lewis and his band of literary Christians. Now, when you talk about literary Christians, literary means it's pertaining to books, writings, classed as literature. 
So you base your Christianity based on literature books, not the Bible. And that's C.S. Lewis. Anyway, uh, the, and they're called the Inklings. This drew me to the whole culture of England. I remember a friend gave me a picture uh, book called The World of C.S. Lewis. One look made me realize it was a world I wanted to enter. The book was full of soft focus photographs of Oxford quadrangles and people hunting, uh, people punning at Cambridge. There were black and white photos of Lewis and his chums swelling dark beer in dark English pubs. This is from, unquote, this is from Dwight Longrenecker. He's a friar now in the Catholic Church uh, from Bob Jones University to the Catholic Church. That was his journey. And C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an extremely dangerous man, and any Christian school that promotes his writings is not faithful to God's word and not protecting Christ's sheep. Even Christianity Today acknowledges heresies, and I read those. You know, he uh, didn't believe in, uh, he believes in purgatory and baptism and regeneration and, and so on. So, you know, we've we got to, again, we've got to be careful what we read. If we want to have faith, if we want to have faith, we need to read the Bible more than anything else. We need to read the Bible more than anything else. Because it's there we're going to get, re- get truth. You know, you may get a few truths out of C.S. Lewis books, but it's like going to the garbage can to get your meal. Now, <clears throat> let's break it down a little bit. If you read 85 verses a day, you read the Bible through in a year. 85 verses a day. In the New Testament, there are 260 chapters, 180,751 words, according to the defined Bible in the back. If you have a defined Bible, you can look us all up in the back of the Bible. Okay? So if you read 495 words per day for a year, you would read the New Testament in one year. 495 words. You know how much that is? About that much. That's about how many words that is. An eight and a half page, 11, and a half by 11 page, you can get about 500 words on it. I counted today. I didn't count this sheet, but I counted another than I had. And it had spaces in it even, and I had over 400 words. That's not much. How long does it take to read a sheet of paper that size? I mean... You know, if you read 10 chapters a day of the Bible, you read the Bible through three times in one year. You know, I read a story some years ago about a guy uh, who said the Bible could be read in 60 hours. And I think it was a lawyer. I'm trying to remember who it was. Anyway, a lawyer said, nah, that's, that can't be true. He said, prove me wrong. So he came back and said, yeah, I did prove you wrong, 45 <laughs> So why don't we? Why don't we read it? Why, why don't I read it? Why don't you want to? Why don't I have faith? It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of priority. You know, we, read, we, we make time for what we want. There's nothing more important for our Christian life than spending time in this book. Read it. Listen to it. You know, you can get as much out of listening to it as you can reading it, I believe. And so, you know, it is the source of our faith. 
It's the force of faith. You know, it gives us directions. And by the way, none of these things are going to work in your life if you don't read it. You know, it gives us directions. Here in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do I know what is right and wrong? You know, people say today, there's so many gray areas today. I don't agree. I'm just telling you, I don't agree with that statement. Follow me, I'm going on a, rabbit, uh, a, a train track, but I hope my train has a caboose. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is any private interpretation. So, he says here, you know, we need to do well to take heed. It's as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this, no scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, when we speak about a private interpretation, that means that all scripture has to agree with scripture. It can't be interpreted. You can't pull a verse out of Scripture, and interpret it by itself. It has to agree with the rest of Scripture. And other Scriptures will add light to that verse of Scripture. I'm going to give you an example here in a minute. You know, so it's like the Word is like a light that shines until the day dawns, or the day star arise. Where? It says in your heart. Now, again, 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So, so if there's, you know, what Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, so there were, there were people that were speaking tongues, and there were still prophets, because the word of God wasn't complete yet, that were foretelling the future and, tell, and, and writing scripture, but he said the prophets are subject to the prophets. So they have to agree with the rest of the prophets. You know, Isaiah 8, 2 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light of them. So it has to agree. So there's no private interpretations. You know, I was in a dentist's office with my wife when she was having problems with her wisdom teeth. And the dentist happened to be a Mormon. And we began this discussion about problems in the Mormon church. And he said, well, one of the things he said, well, our prophets teach. And I said, that is a problem. Because the Bible says that the prophets are subject to the prophets. And if they don't speak according to this word, there's no light in them. So if your prophet says something that contradicts the scriptures, he's a false prophet. Now, he didn't accept what I said because he wouldn't accept the truth. Uh, But see, there's no private interpretations. And so we, we don't want to take a private interpretation of this passage, but when it says, to help us understand this, you know, Proverbs 14, or 4, 8 and 19, 18 and 19 says this, The path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more under the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. So 
So the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more. In other words, it's, his path is more illuminated every day. The more, again, the more the just man is going to study the Word of God, and he's going he's to get more and more direction from the Word of God. It's, it's going to be like his day gets brighter and brighter, or the way is clearer or clearer. You know, I understand more clearly, much more clearly, the gospel and the things from the Bible now than I did five years ago. Because I'm comparing Scripture with Scripture. And, and you know, when it says here in, in uh, first, second Peter 1, that it's as a light that shines in a dark place under the day dawn, the day star rise in your hearts. So, so as we study the Word of God, you know, we're going to have these moments where, ah, it don't dawn on us. It's like the light bulb comes on. You know, the guy that's sitting there watching the sun go down. And he's, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? And all of a sudden it dawns on him. Hey, if he, he's, there, he's there watching and thinking and meditating about where'd the sun go? If you go to the Word of God and you meditate and you think about it and you ponder it and meditate, all of a sudden it's going to dawn on you what that means and how it applies to life. Because you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture. And you'll read principles in the Scripture, and then in another place in that, in, in that same Bible, you're going to read an example of how that principle applied to life. Or what happens when you don't apply the principle? Your lot refused to separate from Sodom. Separation is a biblical command of God. Which Abraham obeyed, Lot did not. And it was Lot who suffered because of his choice, and Abraham who escaped the consequences of the sins of Lot, because he obeyed God. See? So, so again, the... The more this book you read and meditate and think upon and compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll begin to understand more of it, and your path, as Proverbs says, will shine more and more under the perfect day. You'll understand more and more how to apply it to life in everyday situations. You know, it will direct your path. But again, we have to get in it. We have to get in it. So it gives us direction for life. Thirdly, it keeps us from sin. Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so it keeps us from sin. It protects us from sin. Uh, in in uh, verse 1 it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. So, you know, seeking with the whole heart is one who's invested his time, made the Lord his priority, and where the Lord is is in his word. It's where we learn of him. Uh, So, again, it's very important. You know, the word of God gives us a basis upon which God will judge us or examine us. 
It reveals to us God's standard. First Timothy or Second Timothy two fifteen says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there again, comparing scripture with scripture, and you'll learn how to be a workman that pleases God. You know, how do you become an employee that pleases your employer? You follow directions. You learn what he wants, what he desires, what he's asking of you, and you, you, you put effort into doing what needs to be done. And you become approved by your employer. The same is true with the Word of God. You know, it, is, it is how we know uh, what pleases God. It's how we judge or examine ourselves. You know, in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, and verses 22 to 25, James 1, 22 to 25, it says, Be not doer, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... Continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So, we're looking to the mirror of the Word of God, just like we look in the mirror in the morning. And then we adjust things. You, know, you may wash your face, comb your hair, uh, you know, all those things. You know, fix your collar, you know, if you, you know, you know. I think probably before you came to church tonight, probably all of you looked in the mirror. Why do you look in the mirror for? Why do you need to look in the mirror? Well, there might be something out of place. You know, what hairs I have that are left, they might be in the wrong places, you know. You know, you don't want to go to church with a booger hanging on your nose. So you look in the mirror. Why? So that you can examine yourself. See, the Word of God is like a mirror to our soul whereby we examine ourselves by Him. And, again, this is how we grow. And it's, it's by the Word of God we are going to be judged. You know, Jesus told uh, the Pharisees in John 12, in verses 47 and 48, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He didn't come into the world the first time to judge the world. He came into the world the first time to save the world, to be a savior. That was his purpose in coming. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And you know, the interesting thing is, in Revelation chapter 19, when it talks about him that setteth on the white horse who's coming back, and what does it say his name is? The Word of God. You see, that Word, of course, is Christ, and He is going to judge us. So, so here's how we know what pleases the Lord. How God is going to judge us, or how we can examine ourselves. It is spiritual food to help us grow. First Peter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that we may grow thereby. 
know, Job said in Job 23, 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. And here's why. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So what sustained Job through all his trials and troubles that he had? You know, his wife said, curse God and die. And the Bible says that he sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. So what sustained him? Well, it was his meditation in the word. That was a priority in his life. That was a priority in his life. And then it is the means of knowing the Lord. You know, in the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First John 5, why don't you turn there, First John 5, in verse 10 through 13. The Apostle John, wrote in his epistle... First John says, First John 5, verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of the Son. And this is the record. This is the record that God gave of a Son. In other words, this is the witness, this is the testimony of, of what God has given us concerning His Son. And he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you. In other words, I've given you this record so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And in verse 20 he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. See, it's by the word of God that we know of Christ. Not just for salvation. But we get to know Him in, like a, in a personal relationship like we know one another. We trust Him to direct our lives. We have communication with Him through His Word and then through prayer. And that's the second thing I want to look at. You know, devotions is, you know, is communication. It's not just spending time in the Word of God. It's also spending time in prayer. And prayer is communicating with God. It's communicating with God. It's your means of communication. You know, the, the psalmist said in Psalm 63 and verse 6, When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. So he's talking about remembering the Lord or meditating on the Lord in bed. You know what they call this. This is called sac religion. It's, it's scriptural. <laughs> Daniel talks about it. Daniel 4 or 5. I saw a dream which made me afraid and thoughts upon my bed. Did you ever get awake at night? Thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. You know, Daniel, Daniel here was, had been reading some things that troubled him uh, in the scriptures. 
And, and so he wanted understanding. And so in the visions upon my bed. So he says, I'm in bed. And, you know, he may have gone to sleep and woke up. And these thoughts were in his mind. And so he's thinking about God. And he's communicating with God. Chapter 6, verse 10 uh, says, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed. And behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. This is actually Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. It's not, not Daniel, but it's Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is telling what he, what he dreamed and saw on his bed. God gave him this vision in the night. You know, there have been times, not too many. I sleep pretty sound usually. But it seems like in the recent years I get awake more often than not some part of the night. But there have been times I get awake at night and this, you know, how that it dawned on me moment, something dawns on me that I'm thinking about or trying to understand from the scriptures. That's why I keep a pen on my headboard. You know, the problem is I don't want to turn on a light. But anyway, uh, you know, uh, you know, the psalmist and, and Daniel both talk about these things. Uh, you know, the, here's a good practice. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now, this wasn't his prayer thanking the Lord for his breakfast. It wasn't his prayer thanking the Lord for his lunch. And this wasn't his prayer thanking the Lord for his supper. It was more than that. The psalmist said in Psalm 55, 17, Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. You know, you don't have to be in a position of prayer, necessarily, although I believe that's good to, to have that practice, but you don't have to be in a certain position or a certain place, necessarily, to pray. Just any place you can be alone, or you don't even have to be alone. You know, Nehemiah, when he heard about the, the destruction that, and, the, and the, the bad situation that was still at Jerusalem, and, and the Bible says he fasted and prayed for months. And then he goes into the king to, to bear the cup before the king, and the king says, Okay, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Your countenance is sad. Because you're not supposed to go into the king with a sad countenance. And so he tells him what's burdening him. And so he asks, the king asks, what dost thou require? And it says this, and I prayed to the Lord my God. You know, right in that moment, he again prayed and asked God, give me wisdom as to know what to ask. He knew he wanted to do something. But he didn't know if he'd be able to get away from the king. He had a very serious responsibility before the king. He didn't know if the king would allow him. But the king says, what do you request? You know, you may have prayer, times of prayer like that. You may have other times of prayer. You may be driving down the road. You're alone. You see, we need to, but we need to have times of prayer. A prayer is a time to praise and worship God with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. 
In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, the model prayer, what most people call the Lord's Prayer, begins with, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Again, it speaks of worship. We ought to worship God when we pray. We come to Him as subjects, as servants, and He our Father. Uh, it is a time to confess our sins and make things right with God. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, in the model prayer, Forgive us our sins, for we give, forgive everyone that has sinned against us. It is time to make your requests and burdens known to God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, um, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests, let your requests, um, yeah, let your requests be known unto God, and the peace of God that's past all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, so we need to take our requests and our burdens uh, to the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care, all your concerns, all your worries, cast them on the Lord. Cast thy burdens upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee, the psalmist said. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You know, He is your heavenly Father. And He has promised to provide for you all your needs and to protect you. Just like a father is. It's also time to give yourself to God and His will. Now, this is not always easy. But you know, when we pray, we're not to be seeking what we want. We're to be seeking what God wants for us. We are to delight to do His will. You know, there were things that Jesus didn't really want. He didn't want to be put to death. That's why he prayed in the garden, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he said, nevertheless, thy will be done. You know, it's not always easy to ask to give yourself to God and ask for his will to be done in your life. Because they may mean sacrifice on your part. But it will be for His glory. For His purpose. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So, you know, we are. We are encouraged. We are commanded uh, you know, Hebrews 4 tells us to come boldly under the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And, you know, if, if we have this attitude, well, I can handle this and on my own, that's pride. I remember somebody saying that in their Sunday school class years ago, that somebody saying, well, you know, God doesn't want to be bothered with the little things. Do you know that's not true? God's not bothered. God is not bothered 
God has invited us. He wants a personal relationship with us. And He wants this kind of communication with Him through prayer. And so, we need to take time. If we're, if we're going to have a victorious Christian life, if we're going to live, if we're going to be successful as a child of God, a personal time with God is necessary. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he should be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, for like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly should not stand in judgment. Hey, if you don't spend time in the Word of God, you don't know what's right and wrong in the sight of God. You're going to be judged for things that you could have avoided if you'd just taken the time to learn what pleases God. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sitters in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, the way of the ungodly shall perish. You know, he told, he told Joshua, he said, This book of the law shall not depart of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate there in day and night, that thou mayest observe us to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. If I remember correctly, this is the only time the word success is found in the Bible. The only time. And then he says, Have not I commanded thee? In other words, I've commanded you, Joshua, to meditate day and night in the Word of God. God commands us. God knows that it will help us. His thoughts are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up, Psalm 40, verse 5 says. And so, you know, God, again, the reason God gives us these commands is for our good. You know, Abraham obeyed God's commandments and kept himself from the consequences of dwelling in Sodom and enjoying the riches of Sodom. Oh, Lot enjoyed the riches of Sodom for a while. We all know what happened in the end. He lost it all. You know, we can go through life living our own way and doing our own thing. Enjoy the things of this world. But 60, some of us is shorter than that. 30, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years from now. What good is it all going to do you? When you stand before God. You know, again, there's nothing wrong with having things. We just need to make sure our priorities are right. You know, I believe God wants us to prosper. But we need to prosper according to His will, according to His purpose, and not our own. And so, the importance 
of time, our devotions with the Lord. You know, I don't tell people when to do it. I think morning is best. But you know you have some strange people, like Kevin Smith, or Kevin Jones, I mean. He's a night hawk. And he likes to do it after 9 o'clock at night. You know, he thinks I'm strange, and I think he's strange. You know, one plan doesn't fit everyone. The importance is you do it. You make it a priority in your life. You have some time set aside to do it because it will prosper you. It will help you.